Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfume's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Hi. I've tried to create a limit on the number of references to the rapture um, <laughs> that you can endure and still laugh. I mean, I haven't been able to come up with a, a reasonable one, so I apologize in advance. Um, it, it's good to be back uh, preaching. Um, it's also amazing to, to be able to take two weeks off with utter confidence that, that the men who are going to stand up here and preach to you love the Bible, know the Bible, and, and, and can preach to you accurately what the Bible says. Um, so I'm really thankful for Dan and Art the last two weeks, giving me two weeks off to kind of plan and pray um, the next year of your lives. And so um, I'm, uh, I'm thankful, and it's good to be back. Um, two other additional announcements. This is, this, is, this is our strategy, by the way. We have a lot of announcements. We divide them. Um, and the two are this. Men's boot camp is still going on. It's at 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings downstairs in the gallery. And there's two weeks left. Um, last week, if you would have come for the first time, um, you would have not experienced any shame. This time, you will experience only slight shame. Um, next week, you can still come for the very first time for the fourth week, and you'll experience more shame, but it's better than not coming at all. So um, Wednesday morning, 6 a.m. downstairs, we have coffee, donuts, and we talk about what it means to bear the image of God as a man. Um, 
and that's happening. Second thing, if you're new here tonight, we're really, really glad that you're here. And after the service, we'd love a chance to kind of explain a little bit more about who we are, ways to get connected to us as a church. And so we'll take about five, six, seven minutes of your time to kind of get to know you a little bit better and introduce ourselves a little bit better. And that will be happening in that room that says exit. Um, You can walk through that door and there's um, a creepy greenish room in there. And you can sit on one of the couches that are clean and... um, and learn about Park Church, and we can learn about you. So that'll be happening about four or five minutes after the service. That really wasn't that funny. Um, and, uh, and we'll go from there. So I think that's everything. And now we get to go to Ecclesiastes. Um, we are getting close to the end, and I'm excited. Um, and you can take that however you want. Okay, let's pray. Father, um, I pray, um, because of your Son, that you would send your Spirit and that your spirit would come and open our eyes to see you. Not, not only as merciful and gracious, not, not only as holy beyond, beyond expression, not, not, not only as sovereign, as the one who rules over all things, who, who guides and steers history in our lives um, in, in a way that's unstoppable, in a way that fulfills your purposes always. But God, I also pray that we tonight would see you as smart, as wise, God, I pray that you would bridge the gap that exists in our minds and in our thinking, that you, that you would um, crush kind of the, the divides that we've created um, between kind of religious life and our souls and, and, and kind of what we do with the rest of our lives. And that, God, tonight you come and, and just let us stand in awe of your wisdom. Let, let us stand in awe of your grace, of your sovereignty. But, God, tonight especially, I, I pray that through this text you would magnify your wisdom to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, I made an amazing discovery my freshman year in college. Um, my freshman year in college, I was playing football for a college team at that time, and it was my very first time to meet a football intellectual. Um, and, and, and I had always just associated football coaching with that's what you did. You taught history and you coached football. Um, if you couldn't really do other things, I was from Texas, and that's kind of what you did. Um, and, and what I'd never really um, encountered, though, was someone who... Don't ever whoop for Texas. Um, what, what I'd never really discovered uh, in all of my years of playing football, which at that point were a, a, new, a grand six, um, was a, a man who was, like, literally, he would do things with offensive strategies that would stand, that cause you to stand back and just kind of stand in awe. And I'm not exaggerating. And I know this is probably hard for you to imagine, to... to to imagine a great intellect applied to sports, but that was this guy. I mean, literally, we'd come in at halftime, and he'd begin to explain to us what we're going to do after he yelled at us for all the things we did wrong in the first half, and he began to explain to us all the things that were going to happen in the second half, should we choose to do them correctly. Take the right steps, move at the right angles, do all these kind of things. And he would literally be able to predict almost perfectly exactly uh, what plays we would run, what, how many yards we would get in those plays, who on their team would make the tackle, how that was going to cause certain adjustments to happen in the defense, so that when we, and what, what, what play we were going to score on. And not just the kind of play, but, but the number of the plays. So how many plays into the second half? I mean, the guy was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He, he's a head coach now um, at Georgia Tech. And, and he just was the most brilliant football mind I'd ever encountered. But when he began to talk about sport, uh, school, or academics, or engineering, we didn't listen to him anymore. 
I mean, he just didn't have a whole lot to say that, that was groundbreaking in the, in the realm of physics. And he was a football coach at a college that meant he had to address academics every once in a while. And so every once in a while, we'd have a team meeting, we'd be talking through all the things that happened in the season, and tacked on to the end would be this nice little pep talk, only not directed to football, but directed to academics. And we would all stare at him blankly. Sure, you don't even know what a physic is. Or an atom. Or any of that stuff. In other words, he had a realm of, of, of expertise, of things that he was good at, things that we would listen to him talk all day and all night about, things that we trusted his opinion on completely. But let him start talking about things like, like physics or the history of English literature or, or, or things like that. And he just didn't have a whole lot to say to us. There wasn't a whole lot that he could bring to the table. And it seems to me that, that one of the problems that we have when we approach texts like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or even the, the, the back end, the application sections of some of Paul's letters or, or various places throughout the Bible, the, the, the problem is, is that we're, we're used to associating the Bible and, and God talk with, with our spiritual lives, right? With how we get to heaven someday when we die or, or how to avoid going to hell someday when we die or, or maybe some, some pretty clear moral boundaries that we shouldn't cross. But let God begin to describe to us how exactly we should live, what marriage is for, how marriage is defined, what we should do with our money, uh, what, what sex is supposed to be about, uh, well, what, what kinds of approaches to our jobs that we should take, or how we should relate to, to people who live next to us. Outside of the realm of, of establishing moral boundaries, we have a tendency to kind of flip a switch at those moments. That maybe, he's gonna, maybe God in his word is going to throw out something useful here and there. But at the end of the day, God's primarily concerned with my soul. I'm going to be primarily concerned with my physical life, with my physical health, with what I do with my money. So long as I don't cross certain boundaries that God establishes. But we've kind of divided the world into two categories. The spiritual and the physical. The, 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 the reality of values and purpose and, and, and morals and, and the reality of, of practical wisdom that exists over here. So that we think that, that God has some things to say about this stuff. Man, he's brilliant. He knows exactly how to be a moral person. He, he knows all that there is to know about, about, uh, about how to get to heaven and, or how to avoid hell or how to find forgiveness or even kind of these grand themes of purpose and direction for our lives. Uh, but in terms of like what I do with my money, how to, how to relate to my, my husband or wife, what I do Monday afternoon at my job, like, we, we, we tend to kind of flip the switch there, right? He doesn't have a whole lot to say. I, I think one of the problems that, that I'm, I'm praying that God would use this text to confront in us tonight is I don't think most of us think God is very smart. I mean, none of you would admit that because that would be bad. We would have words. But, but in reality, as we begin to think about how our lives run, what actually happens week in and week out in our life, we don't tend to think of God as a, a very smart person. He can, he can paint with big brushes. He can paint with big strokes. But in terms of actually thinking he has something to say, something definitive to say about the details, the, the outworkings of our everyday life, about what 
What's a wise thing to do with our money? What's a wise investment as, a, as opposed to a foolish investment with our money? God doesn't advise me on the stock market. I'd be doing way better. I'd be doing something. <laughs> he doesn't advise me about, about medical health. I'd be much thinner and better looking. We tend to divide up our lives, and Solomon here begins to speak in terms of wisdom and folly. And, and, and we want to categorize that over here, find certain bridges over here to kind of the religious world or the value world. But Solomon will have none of it. In fact, the Bible will have none of it. The fool is the unrighteous one. Those who act wickedly are those who are acting foolishly. Those who act in righteousness, obeying God, submitting to God, obeying His law, those are the ones who act wisely. A man who squanders his money, who wastes it, who buys every new iPad and every new phone and every new computer, even though another one is coming in six months. The one who, who just burns through all the money in his wallet, who, who just wastes it. We, we tend to think of him as stupid, maybe. The one who goes into bankruptcy or goes into debt again and again and again. We may think of him as dumb. We may think of him as maybe a little bit foolish. But would you ever call him wicked? Solomon does. And so tonight as we begin to look at this text, we come to a place in Solomon's great letter um, where he wants to call us to a life of wisdom. A life, not just of moral righteousness, but a wise life, a good life, a full life. And we've got to crush this wall that we've created, where God can advise us on our morality, but he can't speak to us about what we do tomorrow at work and how we relate to the, to the very annoying person in the cubicle next to you. And so we get... To Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and for the first nine chapters, Solomon has been hammering one major theme over and over and over and over and over again, and it's that you do not have control of your life. You are not the sovereign one. You can't, by um, some set of, of actions or thinking or, or machinations, pro- that's a great word. You should implement it this week. That would be wise. Um, machinations in, in, I don't even know if that's a word. Someone look it up. Um, <laughs> if you, you can't do all the right steps and produce the outcome you definitely want. You, you can't make things happen and order your life and protect yourself from death and, and, and make everything that happens. In other words, um, if you'll remember, uh, Art last week talked about how time and chance happen to everyone. If you go back to chapter 3, it talks about how God is the sovereign one. He is the, the providential one. He, he is the one who has appointed times and places for everything. So he says that there's a time to be born and a time to die, and you don't get to decide it. God does. That there's a time to go to war and a time to make peace, and in the end, like, you don't have control over those things. God does. And so over and over and over and over again, Solomon says all of our attempts to control, to steer, to shepherd our own lives, they're vanity. It's like shepherding wind or trying to direct vapor. Um, And none of us are Gandalf with the ship that we can blow out through vapor. Um, It wasn't smoke. Um, Like like none of us are that way, right? Like that's the 
theme that Solomon has been hammering and hammering and hammering. And right alongside that, almost as a slight little reminder here and here and here and here, he says, but, but it's, it's better for a man to live wisely than foolishly. It's better to be a man of wisdom than it is to be a fool. It really is better to fear God, which he, de- he defines in Proverbs. And, and over in, in, in this text is that the fear of God is the source, the beginning of wisdom. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but somehow, he says two things that, that if you begin to think about them, they seem really contradictory. One, you're not sovereign over your life. You don't have control. The, the evil man sometimes gets all of the blessings as though he were a righteous man. The righteous man is often forgotten and treated as though he were evil. You, you, the, the, the guy who invests wisely, who knows, maybe tomorrow the stock market will take a turn for the worse and you'll lose everything. Or, or maybe the guy who just kind of has no idea, he just stumbles onto a, a bag of gold, or silver, bronze, money. And now he's wealthy. You don't have control. And two, it's better to be wise. How can both be true? I mean, if in the end, if I'm not in control, then what does it matter? Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. If, if, if in the end, it doesn't, uh, my wisdom can't produce guaranteed outcomes that, 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 that the things that I want to happen will happen. Instead, um, random chance and time and God's providence, they happen to all of us, then in the end, why does it matter if I live wisely? Why is that a good thing? Why is that a better thing? Chapter 10 is spent answering that question. Why wisdom is better than folly. But don't think for a minute that wisdom gives you control. So let's look at it. Verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. And I saw a book one time, and I looked for it, and I could not find it today on Amazon. It was called, it was a children's book, and it was called A Little Poop in Your Soup. So if you don't wear perfumer's ointment, but you do eat soup, you can think of it that way. Even if it's just a little smidge. (laughs) You wouldn't eat the soup, would you? You wouldn't eat the soup, because there's a poop in it. <clears throat> if you have ointment, and you bought this nice, expensive ointment, my wife has, um, I don't know if they're expensive ointments, but they're ointments of some sort. I don't know if you do call them ointments. But, uh, <laughs> that's so bad. Um, but like, we'll find Carson with it in her hair, and decorating her face. Uh, but, um, which has no point to text at all. But, but, so his point here is, here's something beautiful and good. A nice bowl of soup. Faux. Good faux. Faux with steak in it. Just the right amount of mint. Perfect. Soup. And you find a smidge in the soup. Just a smidge. And you can flick it out. Ruined. Something good is ruined by something small, something foolish, something gross. A dead fly makes the ointment that that was valuable, that was rich, that was good, it it makes it smell bad. I've never owned ointment or had flies in my ointment, so I don't know, but poop in your soup, I know. And so, um, and in the same way, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. 
to here's a man who is wise, who is honorable, who, who um, has had a decent presidency, who's respected. And then he has one foolish encounter, at, at least one, with an intern. What comes to your mind when I say the name Bill Clinton? Republican or Democrat, I don't care. What comes to your mind? Seven years before? Or everything that happened that last year? Wisdom and honor is ruined by folly. And then here's the center of our text. And so we're going to keep coming back to this. It says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And I'm deeply surprised often um, that the Republican Party has not picked this up and used it, championed it. Um, What Solomon says here is is not just that, hey, if we're walking in a line and we're talking about paying attention, because I'm wise, I'm going to drift to the right, and because most of you are fools, um, you're going to drift to the left. It's not saying that. The the, the idea of right and left always has meaning in the biblical text. And, and, And the idea is this. Right always has to do with blessing. It has to do with honor. It has to do with um, uh, grace and mercy and, and, and a seed of blessing, a sign of approval. And the left always has to do with um, folly, perdition, judgment. And, and so you'll remember, if, if you will remember with me, in Matthew 25, Jesus is describing the last day, the, the day of judgment, in which he's judging all men. And he's saying, some will go to the right receive honor and glory. And the wicked, the, the goats, I don't know why goats get picked on, but goats will go to the left and into eternal judgment. So this idea of right and left, it's not just kind of like um, the, the smart, wise person is, is going to stay on the right side of the road and the fool is going to drift across the middle lane. No, no the idea here is, is that the reason why wisdom matters, the, the reason why Despite the fact that you don't control your life, despite the fact you can't guarantee me the outcomes that you want, a life ordered by wisdom tends to lead, it inclines one's life towards blessing. It inclines one's life toward good, towards genuine goods. Um, and, And a life of folly, who knows, man, foolish guy may win the lottery. He, he may stumble into Denver Ted's and enjoy a good cheesesteak. But the wise man knows where it is. Let me tell you a second. If it didn't apply, that you'll get it. Um, the, the, the fool just tends towards judgment. He, he just tends to the left towards, towards folly and ruin and perdition, and, and bad things just tend to follow them around. This isn't a way to control your life. This isn't a way to usurp God's sovereignty in the world. It's not a, a, a way to guarantee kind of the things that you want. No, no. The, the way that Solomon is outlining this is the reason why you want to be wise, the reason why it's, it's better to be wise than to be a fool, is because things just tend to go better. And, and if you're a fool, things just tend to kind of unravel. They, they tend to not go the way you want them to. So God is sovereign. But be wise. Time and chance happen to everyone. But be wise. And then he begins to to outline the differences between wisdom and folly here in the rest of the chapter. 
And, and, and so I want, I want to establish first how the Bible has defined wisdom for us. Um, we tend to define wisdom as common sense. Solomon says again and again that your common sense will kill you in the Proverbs. That's, that's a wonderful theme that you should go back to. Proverbs 14, 12. You should write it on your mirror. Some of you should write it on your hands. Um, that there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it will kill him. In other words, there's a way that seems wise, a way that seems to make sense, a way that it seems like this is, this is common sense. I should put my money here. I should do this. I should treat my wife this way. I should uh, raise my kids this way. There's a way that seems right, that seems commonsensical. It, means, it, it seems to me this is, this is what I should do. This is the right way. And, and Solomon's word is that will kill you. So what is real wisdom? If it's not just common sense, what is it? He says again and again that the wisdom, that, that, that real wisdom, true wisdom, true knowledge for living, um, how to do life well, it begins with the fear of God. It begins with acknowledging that there is a God and that we should tremble before Him. And this fact, this, this small, seemingly small, many times assumed beginning place, then touches everything. So, when I think about how to spend money or how to invest money, oftentimes the thought that there is a God and I should tremble before Him never crosses my mind. When I think about the, the day in and day out of my interactions with my wife or my children, oftentimes, the, the stunning reality that there is a God and I should tremble before Him never crosses my mind. But let's take this a little bit further. Over and over again in Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon has put two ideas together. One, the fear of the Lord, it, it doesn't just mean that kind of sh trembling like a shake. It means acknowledging that God is there and two things about him. That as God, he is sovereign. He rules all things. That, that he brings both blessings and calamity. He brings both good times and bad. He brings all things. In other words, if a tragedy strikes your life, God is not up there throwing up his hands saying, I have no idea. I never saw that coming. And the fear of the Lord is tied up with our ideas that, that God rules, and he rules absolutely. That, that he, he, he brings good times and bad. He bring, he, he doesn't, he's not just up there waiting for your best life to happen to you now. He, he rules. And he rules with a purpose. A purpose that you can't thwart. And two, it recognizes the fact that a day of reckoning, a day of judgment will come. And so, we can kind of expand out our definition of wisdom here. Wisdom is a life ordered in light of the fact that there is a God and that I should fear him. And that I fear him because he sovereignly rules the world and that one day has promised a day of judgment. That that realization should change everything about your life. It should have direct ramifications on your life tomorrow at 2.30 in the afternoon when you are tired of working and you want to play Angry Birds in the bathroom on your phone. I know you do that. Does it? Just joking. <laughs> no, I, I'm just joking. He deleted Angry Birds. Um, 
It, it should have direct ramifications when it's 5.30, husbands, fathers, and, and you've been working all day and you're exhausted. You can't even think straight. You want to go home and sit down to a nice dinner, turn on ESPN, turn on the basketball game on that's tonight, and you want to lay on the couch, have your children fawn over you and, and fan you and bring you ice-cold beverages of your choice and, and just not engage. It should change that. In other words, the, the knowledge that there's a God, that He rules, that He is sovereign, that, that He brings both blessing and calamity, and that in bringing both blessing and calamity, He's also promised that there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, a day when He punishes the wicked and, and redeems or, or exalts or, or justifies the righteous. That reality touches and should touch everything pocketbooks, how you relate, how you have sex, how you get married, how you relate to marriage, how you engage in that marriage, how you raise your children, how you think about the economy, how you think about politics. This is the way of wisdom. It's not common sense. It is an intentional life lived out of the stunning realization that there is a God. It changes everything. So let's look at a couple of places where it changes everything. So verse 3, my favorite verse. Maybe this week anyway, my favorite verse in the Bible. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. I love that verse. I am a fool. I am a fool. I'm an idiot. Yes, I am a fool. And so you've seen this, right? You know you have. Maybe you're actually that guy. Uh, this has never happened to me. Um, you're driving down the road, and you pull up to a stoplight, and you look to your right. And a man is screaming at the top of his lungs, yelling at someone in front of him. Why? I mean, screaming his head off. That man is a fool. And as you look at him, he's declaring to you, I'm an idiot. Hey, I'm an idiot. Look at me. I'm yelling at someone in front of me in the car and they can't even hear me. Idiot. Fool. Bumper sticker says idiot. Like that's... So the fool just declares everywhere by his actions. It's very, very evident who the fool is. So so the the first reason why you shouldn't want to live like a fool and you should want to live like a wise man is, is... Well, you just, if you're a fool, you look like a fool. And everyone knows it. If you're a fool, everyone knows it. Everyone. Think you can hide it by dressing smart, wearing glasses. (laughs) Looking very, you can wear a right coat. No. Your life loudly declares to everyone wisdom or folly. So, So let's keep going. This gets better. So if the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And so folly and wisdom is evidenced by how you respond to when those in authority over you, those in places of honor, those in in, in particular kinds of roles that, that we should submit to and honor and respect, when all of a sudden they decide they don't like you, how do you respond? Are you nice to them? 
Or do you pick fights with them? Or do you rise up and kind of not know your place or think that, man, this is about my honor. I'm just going to, I'm just right, I'm, I'm in it. So, 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 so which is it? So the fool doesn't know his place. The fool doesn't know that, that there is a place of honor. There is a place where even if they're idiots, you have to respect them. Hey, and you shouldn't call them idiots. It tells us at the end of the chapter, you don't even whisper it or think it because a bird's going to hear you. And, and, and you should just acknowledge the fact that there's someone in a place of honor and power and authority who can have you killed. I mean, it's almost as if Solomon is, is warning his people, hey, if I get mad at you, don't pick a fight with me. I'll have you killed. Just be calm. If you're just calm, I'll be calm. And we can all get along. But fools don't know how to do that. Everything's a fight to them. I, mean, I knew these guys in high school. Did you know these guys in high school? Maybe you work with these guys or these girls. And maybe it just looks different between guys and girls, but, but the guys who are willing to, to pick a fight at the drop of a hat because their honor's on the line, you, you bump into them on the street and, and you say, excuse me, and they start mouthing off to you. Or, or the girl in your office who you, you just... Everything turns into this big, dramatic fight. Everything leads to... They don't know how to remain calm. They don't know how to kind of let stuff kind of fall off their shoulders. No, everything turns into this intense, dramatic battle. Folly versus wisdom. In this paragraph, in verse 5 through 7, and here he begins to show us again why it is that we don't want fools, why we want a life of wisdom. And we, want, we, we, want, we don't want fools in places of authority, right? Like if somebody's obviously a fool, you don't want to elect them to be president. You don't want to make them sovereign ruler and king over your country. You don't want them to be your pastor. Don't say anything. Um, you, you don't want parents who are fools, because it's just not, it's not good. It's going to produce foolishness. It's going to produce a, a foolish kind of life, a less, a, a life that drifts to the left, children who drift to the left, a country that, that was, I don't mean this politically, that drifts to the left, a, a, a kind of life that's just not full, it's not rich, it's not wise, it's not good, it, it's not full of blessing. It's just going to tend, incline to destruction and wickedness and not goodness. You don't want a fool teaching your teacher, teaching your teacher, teaching your children. You should pray for wise teachers, teachers that fear God. We constantly go back to that definition of wisdom. Why? Because you want things to tend to the right, towards blessing, towards goodness, towards fullness, not to the left. And so Solomon observes that as he looks out over the world, he sees that, that folly is placed in high places, that, that the, the one who is a slave who doesn't know anything in this culture is the one riding on the horse, the one um, giving direction, the one leading, and, and kings who, who are just dumb, that, that just waste their people's lives, that waste money, that waste direction, and, and, and things in those places tend to go badly. But, but where there's wisdom, things tend to go well. Let's keep going. And then he goes to this, um, in verse 8. He says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, 
The serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So, and I think this is there because of what he's about to say in verse 9. And like, he's just saying, look, like, yes, the hardworking to any of us is if we're digging through a wall, who knows? There might be a snake on the other side of it that's going to bite you and you could die. You're digging a pit, you trip, you fall. Uh, you're in the pit that you were digging. Hopefully it wasn't a very deep pit. It, you're quarrying stones, you're chopping down wood, whatever you're going to do, you, random chance, bad things are just going to happen. Uh, things are just not going to go how you want them to go always. But that doesn't change the reality that sharpening your axe before you go to chop down a tree makes it easier to chop down the tree. Wisdom still helps. Wisdom still makes things go generally better than they would have gone otherwise. So, so, so the reason why in a life filled with chance, in a life filled with, that's outside of our control, that's under the providence of God, in a life that we can't control the outcomes, why? Because I, I generally want a life that tends to the right and not to the left. Why do we listen to God? Why do we fear God and begin to think intentionally about every aspect of our lives and how we, from how we chop down a tree to how we do marriage to how we do sexuality to what we do with our money? Why? Because we want a life that tends to the right and not to the left. It keeps going and it begins to speak specifically to this definition of wisdom. It says, the, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the, of, of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. And so man spends thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to put up billboards that tell us that the rapture is coming on May 21st. And he puts up blogs, and he puts out recordings, and he puts up posters everywhere, and it just spreads like he just never stops talking about things that he knows nothing about. Things of which Jesus himself said, I don't even know the day. Can you imagine Jesus listening to this guy? Really? Holy cow, I didn't know. And right here, we, we get close to what the heart of the difference is between wisdom and folly. A wise man acknowledges that there's a God who is sovereign, who's in control, and I'm not him. And a fool just keeps talking. Like he knows the world perfectly. Like he understands what's about to come. As though he could just exude just wonderful foresight and wisdom into all of our lives. He just keeps on talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And in the beginning, it just sounds like rabble. But by the end, he begins to talk himself into such a deep hole that it's no longer just empty kind of floating words. It, it's become evil madness. Doing foolish things isn't just stupid. It's evil. And it's mad. Unrighteousness is not just breaking some rule in a book somewhere. Some standard of morality that God has established. It, it, it's certainly not less than that. It's folly. It's dumb. But wasting your life 
on drink and sex and the accumulation of wealth. Bending your life ever further inward on yourself. Treating marriage as if it's a game. Wasting your life. Disregarding God's law. It's not just violating a moral code. It doesn't just bring you judgment in some court of law because God has a set of rules and you've broken them. According to Solomon, it's also stupid. It's folly. In the end, it will lead to death and destruction and the unraveling of everything good in your life. A lot of us have bought into a model of salvation that primarily has to do with heaven and hell. I believe that heaven and hell, heaven and hell are real. I believe that, um, that we will all stand before God and be judged on, on the basis of whether or not we have worshipped Him and obeyed Him or not. And if you haven't, you cling to Jesus. And none of us have. So I believe that that, that judgment is real. But if that's all you see, if you define salvation merely as forgiveness... If I say this prayer, or I cling to Jesus, or I trust in Jesus, or I sign the card, or I went forward at a, at a crusade, or I, I, I got baptized at one point, and therefore now I'm saved, and I know that someday I'll go to heaven, you've missed most of it. Jesus didn't simply die so that you could go to heaven someday when you die. He, he says that he came to bring us life fullness of life. And, and this, this, this idea of fullness of life, it, it's, it's, not, it's not just some mystical kind of existential tingling down your spine, like, oh, that was life. Oh, fullness. I felt a tingle. No. He came to give you wisdom. First Corinthians um, chapter 1, Paul talks about this wisdom that he proclaimed from God through the cross, but that Christ has become for us righteousness from God. So we are declared righteous by a gift from God through Jesus. Beautiful, wonderful. We celebrate it every week here. It doesn't stop there. It says that Jesus has become for us not only righteousness from God, but sanctification from God. In other words, that Jesus comes and he gives us not only this, this right standing before God, he also gives us this transformed life, this life of holiness, this life of being set apart for God's purposes and, and for the worship and glorification of his name. But he doesn't even stop there. He says that, that Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God. So that your, your life is, not only do you receive from Jesus forgiveness and, and, and you're declared righteous before him, you also receive from him this, this life of being transformed more and more and more. Oh, I knew that was going to happen. I want to break this. More and more into the image of God so that you look like him, so that you're whole, made more and more holy, more and more that you look like God, that people look at you and see that was, that's, that's something of what God is like. As you trust in Jesus and you believe that those things are true, that begins to happen. But not only that, you begin to receive wisdom. A life submitted to God's word. A life 
ordered and touched and transformed and changed in every single detail by the reality that there is a God who's sovereign, who's providential, who rules all things, and has established a day of judgment. And that text in, in 1 Corinthians 1, um, verse 30, it ends by saying, and redemption. This, this giant word that, that speaks of the fact that our whole lives, our whole existence has been purchased by God, redeemed by God, rescued by God. Yes, declared righteous. Yes, made holy. But also made full and rich and good. You don't have to live stupid anymore. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, because he died for your sins. You can live before God, trembling before him, and pursuing fullness of life and goodness and wisdom everywhere you go. Jesus died to give you all of it. And so long as we divide up our lives and continue to live as though, when it comes to things like football, when it comes to things like heaven and hell and certain kinds of moralities, God's really, really smart. He has a lot to say to me there. But when it comes to what I do with my money, what kind of house I buy, where I buy my house, what my marriage should look like, God really doesn't have much to say to me. So long as you live with that divided world, man... You're living as though God isn't smart. And you're living like a fool. Jesus died not only to make you righteous, not only to make you holy, but to make you wise. And so when we gather at this table and we take the bread and we dip it in the wine and we celebrate again the fact that, that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was spilled for us, it was spilled, yes, so that we might be forgiven, that our sins might be washed away. But on the other side of that, it was spilled so that he might give us all things. That we might, again, come to live out our lives on this world, in this world, in this culture, in this city, as those who are wise and not fools. So let's pray. God, I pray that we would stop dividing up our lives. That we'd stop presuming that the God of the universe who made all things, who knows all things, who gave us things like drink and sex and food and our jobs and every breath that we breathe and gave us clothing, that the one that you who gave us all of those things doesn't know much about them. God, that we'd come to you and submit our lives to you and, and recognize the folly of our lives, the rebellion of our lives, and the foolishness that if left to ourselves would kill us. That we'd come and, and clinging to Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, we'd come and through your word receive wisdom. And that God, you would give us as a church full, rich, wise, good lives show what redemption really looks like. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.